Despite bearish consensus predictions of the equity market at the start of last year, U.S. stocks powered higher to near record highs in 2023. So can stocks in the U.S. economy repeat this strong performance in 2024? When people say, do you think this will continue? It depends on whether you're talking about positive returns or if you're talking about this magnitude of returns and this magnitude of U.S. outperforming non-U.S. stocks. And on all of these, our view is we're not going to get these kind of returns. Our base case for this year for U.S. equities is mid-single digit. We're saying about 6% for the S&P 500, for example. So definitely nothing like what we were expecting last year. I'm Alison Nathan, and this is Goldman Sachs Exchanges. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking again with my colleague, Sharmeen Masavar-Ramani, Rahmani, is the head of the Investment Strategy Group, or what we call ISG, within GS Asset and Wealth Management, and the Chief Investment Officer of GS Wealth Management. Sharmeen and her team recently published their 16th annual outlook titled, America Powers On!, which outlines ISG's investment themes and recommendations for clients for the year ahead. Sharmeen, Happy New Year, and welcome back to the program. Happy New Year, too, too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Sharmeen, when we last sat down about a year ago, investors, as you might recall, were very bearish on the outlook for U.S. equities. But you and your team were calling for substantial upside. I think your base case forecast for S&P 500 returns was around 13%, if I'm not mistaken. And you had an upside case closer to 30% in a good scenario. So as we all know, the S&P 500 did have an amazing year, up 26% in 2023. What did you see that others didn't? Why did U.S. equities perform so well, despite the many concerns and uncertainties and headwinds that consensus was worried about? When we think of 2023, we need to put it in the context of 2022. So if you go back and think about the returns in 2022, from high to low, we had a drop in the equity markets intraday about 28%. So there was incredible bearishness going into the beginning of 2023. From the market downdraft to, if we think about Bloomberg consensus expectations for a recession, it stood at 68%. CEOs were bearish. They were all talking about the odds of a recession being very high. Colleagues in GIR, Global Investment Research, Jan Hatzius and David Merkel actually had a 35% probability We had a 50% probability, and that's not high enough from our perspective to say, oh, a recession is highly likely. So while the market still was pricing in a recession, we were not. And when you look at times where you have such big downdrafts, just historically, 12 months later, on average, the market is up 23%, and 24 months later, the market on average is up 32%. So given that we believe history is a very useful guide, Given all the bearishness that existed, we thought, okay, we're going to expect a mid-single-digit earnings growth. We were expecting GDP of around 15 to 2%. So between inflation and GDP, you're having good potential for nominal sales growth. We were not bearish on margins. We thought when you get good sales growth, typically you're going to end up with margin expansion. You put all of that together, and we had a base case for 2023, as you mentioned, of 13% for the S&P 500, plus that additional percentage for the upside. And so those were the key factors that got us started. And then as we went through the year, one could ask, well, your base case was 13. Why did it end up being up 26? And what happened is I think people's probability of recession across the board came down. So that provided a nice tailwind. Then you had every quarter earnings ended up being better 
than where consensus was at the beginning of that quarter, and so that provided an additional boost. Then we had inflation numbers heading down, so investor confidence improved. And then, of course, later we had the Fed pivot that gave an incredible surge to equities across the board, both in terms of the growth stocks and the rest of the market. So expectations shifted, and then the data began to shift, and markets were pricing that in. So the big question on investors' minds is, of course, can this outperformance continue in 2024? What do you think? It's a very interesting question. And when people say, do you think this will continue? It depends on whether you're talking about positive returns or if you're talking about this magnitude of returns and this magnitude of U.S. outperforming non-U.S. stocks. And on all of these, our view is we're not going to get these kind of returns. Our base case for this year for U.S. equities is mid-single digit. We're saying about 6% for the S&P 500, for example. So definitely nothing like what we were expecting last year. And our good case is sort of low teens, low to mid-teens. And so even then, we're not looking at anything like we experienced in 2023. Because we're already starting at such a high level, of course, and a lot of the positive expectations are now priced in. Exactly. And we're one of the few that actually think thinks we're going to get a bit of multiple contraction. There's no doubt equities are expensive. We actually, in the report, talk about lofty levels. When you're looking at a series of metrics, equities are in the 10th decile of valuation, meaning they were cheaper 90% of the time in their history for the S&P 500. And so when you look at that mix, basically you're saying, how can you actually bet on continued multiple expansion? So for us, the key driver is earnings, and we have a little bit of actually multiple contraction in our base case. A lot of clients, investors, do seem to grab on to that valuation argument as perhaps a reason to, even if we see relatively solid fundamentals this year, even if we see some upside, maybe it's time to pare back U.S. positions a bit, think a bit more about non-U.S. equity positions. Do you think there's any validity to that view and that argument? So there are two points that you just raised. One is valuations. Do they matter on a short-term basis? And the reality is valuations actually do not explain much of the returns for the next 12 months. So the fact that valuations are in the 10th decile tell you a little bit about returns, but not that much. Other factors will become much more important, such as the earnings, such as flow of funds, such as inflation, interest rate views, what's the discount rate people want to use. So valuation alone is never a good reason for either going overweight or underweight, unless it's extreme, meaning extremely cheap equities, for example, would prompt an overweight from us. Then the next question becomes, what about valuations of U.S. equities versus non-U.S. equities? So as you said, clients are asking that question. Is this time to tactically shift away from U.S. equities into non-U.S. equities, both developed and emerging markets? In fact, when you look at the numbers, our base case, for example, for U.S. equities at six, our all-country world index number is higher. So when we're looking at returns there, we're looking at, for example, let's say Japan, non-U.S. developed, the highest numbers we have are around 8%, so clearly outperforming. But we actually are not recommending clients necessarily switch to those areas and regions. When we look at valuations, they do look very cheap in those areas, in these different countries and regions. But we tell clients they need to make a major adjustment. You need to adjust these indexes for their sector weights. And we compare and contrast U.K. equities to U.S. equities. About 30%, well, 29% of earnings for the S&P come from the technology sector. If you look at that for UK equities, it's 1%. 
Well, if the technology sector trades at a market multiple of around 27 and energy trades at a market multiple of 11, any index that has a lot more energy like the UK market and a lot less earnings will look cheaper. But that's not because they're absolutely cheaper. It's because they have a bigger allocation to cheaper sectors. Once you make that adjustment in all these market benchmarks, non-U.S. equities are not as cheap as they appear. In fact, in some parts, in some countries, in some regions, if you're looking at Eurozone, et cetera, and aggregate, in some of them, the valuations increase substantially. So first of all, we tell clients they need to think about that. And second, generally, the U.S. trades at a premium to all these other places. So you need to look at the discount relative to history. And it is a little cheap, but not cheap enough to make up for all the other issues. So for example, we have U.S. growth at about trend, but we don't have Eurozone or the U.K. at trend. We have well below trend. And so we need to be very cautious, given the uncertainty in some of these areas. They could slip into recession. Is that also the case for emerging markets? And I would say China in particular, of course, people are focused on China because it does look very cheap. What are your views in terms of clients taking positions in some of those emerging market areas or China? That's an excellent question, because when you look across the board, China is by far the cheapest market among major markets, major economies, by far. And so clients are asking the question, shouldn't we be investing there? So first, obviously, make that adjustment for the sector weight differentials. But even when you make that adjustment, it's still one of the cheapest markets. And we actually make a case that clients should not invest and not tactically go out of U.S. equities or developed market equities into China. And there are a few reasons. If we look at GDP growth prior to COVID, the average 10-year number was 7.7%. Our view is going forward for the next 10 years, the average GDP is going to be 3.4% a year. That's a big downward shift and continuing on a downward trend till they get to about 2.5%. So in general, GDP is a headwind to earnings growth. Then you have other uncertainties such as the de-risking from Europe and the U.S. towards China. And China also has its own quote-unquote de-risking towards the rest of the world in terms of domestic focus that they have. So you have those factors. Then you have regulatory uncertainty about what sector of the market they could suddenly focus on. We know they've focused on the technology sector multiple times, and that's driven down the market significantly. We know they focused on the education sector. And so one never quite knows what the focus could be. So what I'm hearing from you is stay overweight U.S. equities. But that's the theme you've had for quite some time. I mean, I think it's about 14 years Talk us through why that theme has had so much endurance. We've actually had two investment themes now for a very long time, as you point out. One is U.S. preeminence, and the other is stay invested. So the U.S. preeminence theme that we've had for so long is actually something we had from a strategic asset allocation perspective in our recommendations to clients even earlier. But the theme of emphasizing U.S. preeminence relative to others really came around during the global financial crisis when everybody was saying this century belongs to China and the American century is over. And so the 20th century was that of the United States. The 21st century belongs to China. And we wanted to make a very strong point that that is totally mistaken. And the 21st century still belongs to the United States. And so we did a lot of research to say, what are the arguments for that? First and foremost, when you're looking at the size of this economy, the wealth of this economy. And these are factors that endure. So in fact, if you look at even a year like 2023 and you look at the GDP increase, you look at the GDP per capita increase, because the U.S. starts on such a high base, 
even smaller incremental returns in absolute dollars just widens the gap between the U.S. and other parts of the world. So other countries just cannot compete. They cannot get there with the same level of wealth and GDP per capita. Then you look at the incredible natural resources of this country, whether it's you're talking about arable land, whether you're talking about oil and gas, whether you're talking about water. It's just incredible. And there are not many countries in the world that can say they have such vast resources across so many different areas. So it's in the energy sector, it's in the agricultural commodities, it's in metals and mining. So it's across the board. And these are factors that endure. They don't just disappear overnight. So that theme is going to be very long-tailed. It's going to last a long time because it doesn't look like anybody's going to be able to catch up. Then you overlay that with incredible labor productivity. People are surprised to hear that the U.S. labor force is the most productive in the world. You add to that corporate management. The quality of corporate management by third-party research academic work shows that it is the highest ranked in the world. And so you put all of that together, and there's incredible earnings generation power here. And so that's why the U.S. preeminence theme, you just look at the innovation. You look at the respect for property rights. You look at rule of law. All of those factors supported. The the U.S. spends the highest dollar amount on R&D. That, again, supports innovation. You have great capital markets that provide liquidity and funding sources for innovation. So it's all of these factors coming together for the U.S. preeminence theme. And then the stay invested theme to our clients for U.S. equities is that if you look at this earnings power, generally it's on an upward trend. Prices follow. So you have that upward trend in S&P 500 prices as well. So there has to be a very high hurdle to go underweight equities. And the hurdle has to be either you know something that the market doesn't know and hasn't priced in, but that's rarely the case. So think about 2022, the market quickly priced in a recession And we actually didn't even have a recession. So going underweight has a very high hurdle for us. And that's why we focus on these two investment themes. So you mentioned you have a mid-single-digit return expectation for U.S. equities. Walk us through some of your expectations for other assets and what the implications are for general portfolio allocation recommendations that you have today. So we said U.S. at six, big picture, MSCI, all-country world index at seven. And then some of these other places are at eight to make the average seven. For bonds, we typically have four to five percent returns, just a tad lower than equities. And then for cash, about five percent. We're saying there's not enough of a difference there for clients to actually move assets around between these various asset classes, especially for taxable investors. So if you have taxable investors in the U.S. They have huge capital gains if they own equities. To actually get out of U.S. equities, to lock in some of those gains and to go into, for example, bonds or cash, they're going to have a huge tax burden. So if they, for example, had invested some of these equity assets during COVID, their capital appreciation is huge. And to break even with the taxes that they have to pay, the equity market has to go down 20% if you're a New York or a California resident. So we're telling clients, just stay invested and do not switch around. Interesting. Okay. And so we talked a lot about valuation. Is there an asset that does look very cheap and compelling in your view? When we look at U.S. sectors, there are no obvious sectors that jump out to us in meaningful sectors, big sectors where we'd want to overweight or underweight. And that actually includes the technology sector. It is marginally more expensive, maybe 20% more expensive than its long-term historical average. But that's not an argument for actually going underweight. 
we need a much bigger dislocation in sectors for an overweight or underweight. There's one subsector, we would say, in the energy market that we like, and that's master limited partnerships in the infrastructure space. And we've had that tactical tilt, we call them tactical tilts, actually since 2015. Usually our tactical asset allocation ideas last about a year, some shorter, some longer. But this has been a very long-standing one. We like the yield. We like the distribution yield. And for taxable investors like U.S. investors, it's tax-advantaged. So we actually think it has an attractive risk-return profile and it's tax-advantaged. So within subsectors, that's a tactical tilt we've had on that we're going to keep. In terms of other recommendations to clients, we're saying be at your duration target. Do not be underweight duration whether it's in the 10-year, whether it's in UK yields, whether it's in European bonds, we recommend clients be at their full duration. And then at the margin, there are a couple of small tactical tilts. And one big theme that we've had is uranium. We're actually being long physical uranium, saying that there is going to be a shortage relative to the increase in demand that is coming from China building more nuclear plants, Japan restarting some of their nuclear plants, and people recognizing that you need a transition energy source, and it's nuclear and natural gas to get you to better renewables, and people can't avoid that. And because of the whole sentiment around ESG, that had been a neglected area, and that's why there was incredible appreciation in uranium last year, and we think there's more to go, and that's a tactical tilt we've had on now as well. How do you go long uranium? It's actually not that easy. It's it's not as if you can go buy uranium on the spot market, a futures contract, etc. There's actually a physical structure where you actually physically own it and it's stored elsewhere. Interesting. Okay. Let's talk a bit about risks to the outlook. What are you most concerned or focused on for 2024? What could be the headwinds that derail your relatively optimistic expectations? In our report, our outlook, America Powers On, we list all the risks to our economic and financial market outlook. And from our perspective, the highest one, the top risk, is escalation of the Israel-Hamas war. Obviously, it has escalated over the course of the few months since October 7. And we've seen some regional involvement, but it seemed contained until most recently where you've had strikes on the Houthis. And so the question is, does it escalate further from here? Or is there enough incentive where both the U.S. and Iran, more than any other country, do not want to see further escalation? And so if they actually can hold back Like if the Iranians can hold back and not encourage any activities, then we stay as we are. But on the other hand, if there's any escalation, more escalation from Hezbollah and Israel in the northern border, more escalation with the Houthis, do the Houthis strike at anybody else in the Middle East? Will Iran get involved? The risks are not small. And we think that's probably going to be the one that would have the biggest impact on our outlook and on GDP growth, on risk premium in equities on oil prices, even if there's no real disruption, oil prices could go up. So, so far, we haven't seen much, even with the Houthi strike, but certainly something to keep an eye on. Our view is the Ukraine-Russia war is more of a stalemate. Charmaine, let me end with what is always my favorite question, which has to do with how you choose the image that appears on the front of your report. This year's cover is a beautiful, I would say, illustration of a classic Cadillac with a USA license plate on the wide open road. So first of all, let me ask you, where did you get that image? Because I honestly think it's a piece of art. But beyond that, how did you choose it and what did you hope to convey? I have to say, I really appreciate what you said because we do spend a lot of time on what the cover should look like. 
this is actually an artist that we work with. And we give this artist an idea of what we want, and then we iterate multiple times going back and forth till we get the right image that's in our head on paper. The message of America Powers On is one, we want to have a powerful car. And so you have this Cadillac, as you say, and you think about it as a powerful car. Second, these cars were designed at a time where U.S. was building big, powerful cars ahead of everybody else. So that's one image that we want to convey. The second image, as you said, is this vast, expansive country that we're looking at. Huge spaces, big roads, big mountains, big deserts. And we're trying to convey the vast expanse of the U.S. Because if you think about the U.S., one of the things we mentioned in the report is the incredible diversification of the sources of earnings. If you think about this country, highest GDP per capita of any major country, highest GDP in aggregate, largest capital markets in the world by a huge factor, then you think about the most arable land in the world, so the biggest exporter of agricultural commodities, largest producer of oil and natural gas liquids, now the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. It's just amazing. So we want to convey all of that in that image, and that was the point. And then obviously USA and no cars in the neighborhood. So it's a leader, nobody ahead, and nobody in the rear view mirror. And so that was the purpose. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us again, Charmaine. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Goldman Sachs Exchanges, recorded on Friday, January 12th, 2024. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit GS.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends spanning markets, industries, and the global economy. The opinions and views expressed in this program are not necessarily the opinions of Goldman Sachs or its affiliates. This program should not be copied or published without the express written consent of Goldman Sachs. Each brand mentioned in this program is the property of the company to which it relates and is not used to imply any ownership or license rights. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice through this program. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this program.